the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3 this Tuesday, a delight, as always, to have in studio with me Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman. Lewis Holman is the Managing Director of Insight Analytics, LLC. Hugh Holman is an educator, a businessman, an attorney, a philanthropist, and the former mayor of Tempe. Uh, Both of them brought their Christmas mirth and merriment into the studio today. I'm so excited for this discussion today and uh, the mood we're all in. Christmas mirth and merriment. That starts <laughs> Don't kill with, it. <laughs> no, it's delightful. Okay. starts with America's strategic posture. And that is the notion, uh, re- report that was completed in October, before the October 7th events, in fact, uh, and released by the Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture of the United States. And what they mean by that is the military readiness of the United States in the current environment. And since Lewis has reread the entire report yet again, um, I thought I'd let him sort of summarize what their approach is, and then he and I are going to argue about it a lot. And then we hope you'll join in because you're smarter about these issues than I'm not, both but, of us put together. But I'd like to make a prefatory comment, if I might. By all means. You have been on this for like two and a half months wanting to talk about this. And you, as per usual, were ahead of the curve and right. You are absolutely right because when I did sit down to read it, it is jaw-dropping. And um, I think it was because of October 7th that it otherwise got so little attention. But may I just read two sentences from the executive summary without stepping on any toes? The new global environment is fundamentally different than anything experienced in the past. Even in the darkest days of the Cold War, today the United States is on the cusp of having not one but two nuclear peer adversaries, each with ambitions to change the international status quo by force, if necessary, a situation which the United States did not anticipate and for which it is not prepared. Holy you-know-what! It goes on. I'm done. It does. And uh, let me set the table again. Sorry, Lewis. I'll uh, add (laughs) one bit. We have previously talked about the fact that with the state of our armed forces, prior to World War II, with the, as Lewis likes to talk about, the ocean moat and ocean moat that we have on either side, and then Canada sleeping to the north and Mexico in disarray to the south, we're pretty well protected. Before World War II, the conventional weapons that were available could not reach the United States very easily. It took the Japanese Navy a flotilla to get to uh, Pearl Harbor uh, and and blow it up, and that took quite an effort, and that was a sort of a one-off. Now, uh, or then, we then took a couple of years to get the motors running and get the machine moving, uh, churning, to put out the kind of materiel we needed to enter World War II. We were 
in the war on December 7th, 1941, but did not really assert much of a presence for a couple of years. We had provided Great Britain through Lendlease all of our old uh, ships that were available from World War One and in that era. And in exchange got all of their bases in the Western Hemisphere. I didn't say it was a bad deal, Lou. I'm just saying that we provided that stuff and the, the British had to refit it all and were somewhat miffed that we'd sent them a bunch of floating junk. Uh, but it still provided value to them and much needed value in a very difficult situation where Republicans were uh, – isolationists and not wanting to engage and ultimately had to engage as a result of the attacks by Japan on Pearl Harbor, not even then a state of the United States. In this environment, we are not going to have the time to get the motors running, to get the engines moving, get the machine going to produce what we'll need. That is why in the current environment, one needs to be prepared at a moment's notice for what might occur. And in that context, I want to turn it over to Lou to describe sort of what this report was attempting to do, what he thinks it's done, and then we'll argue about it. So this report is uh, the latest in a long series of these reports, and it discusses in, in great detail— Technically a series of two, but a lot of stuff between. Right. And and it discusses in, in uh, significant detail um, U.S. Uh, uh, strategic posture, particularly our nuclear posture, uh, the modernization of our nuclear triad, as well as the changing threat environment from uh, Japan, I mean, excuse me, from China and from Russia. Um, one of the things, though, that that is interesting is that there was a shift in U.S. strategic thinking that this document discusses that came about um, in the, the sort of the mid-aughts, right around the time of the, the great financial crisis, while we were moving more and more into the Middle East. And it is the uh, movement away from what during the Cold War was known as the two-war strategy, which stipulated that at any given time, the United States should be able to dedicate sufficient conventional forces that it could fight uh, a war in Europe and in Asia simultaneously and later versions of this of this policy also included uh, an ability to project influence into the Persian Gulf as well, starting in about 1980. Underscoring the word conventional weapons. Right. And that's actually one of the, the areas in which this report is, I would say, um, really, really unfortunately lacking. Woefully spends, deficient? Woefully deficient, I think, is a great turn of phrase, yes. Uh, it spends almost the entirety of its time discussing... Uh, uh, the nuclear environment. And the issue with that is that while nuclear weapons are fabulous at generating headlines and at attracting international attention, they're, they're very um, interesting and compelling at the level of the UN and, and at, at work of nuclear nonproliferation. However, nuclear weapons have not claimed human lives since 1945, at least in, in a military setting. We have had disasters and a few other things that, that have, have hurt people before. But in terms of bodies dropping, the nukes aren't killing people. They are sitting in their silos dictating the strategic environment. And what we then are, are left with is an environment where, as we rely on our nuclear weapons, 
we are faced with an enemy that is then capable of going after what are called short of war conditions. This would be the type of strategy where you attack an opponent who is nuclear armed with just enough provocation to get under their radar for where they will attack you with nuclear weapons. The example would be Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014 and then its follow-up in 2022. It's follow-up being invading, actually invading Ukraine after getting signals from uh, Barack Obama's understudy that uh, maybe we wouldn't waste time, treasure, or, or weapons on defending Ukraine. And so, so we're, we're at a point then where all of this, this ink and blood and treasure is being, spelt, is being spilt chasing the, the weapons in their silos, but not thinking about the conventional forces, the bullets and the guns that actually kill people. One of the things that we've seen as a result of this, that this report does not touch on whatsoever, is the the transition of our of our Navy, the movement from World War II when we had the ability to project power over the entire ocean. We had hundreds of destroyers that gave us the ability to control global trade. And now we have effectively hollowed out our Navy so that its core are 12 supercarrier strike groups. And that's great. Those, those are incredibly powerful, incredibly expensive tools. Those carriers cost maybe $20 billion a pop. They can carry maybe 100 combat aircraft, and they are the perfect tool for knocking over a country, should you choose to. But they are not the tool for maintaining the current strategic equilibrium. They are not the tool for maintaining global trade. And you the cannot re- use an aircraft carrier to secure the Mediterranean basin so that everyone can, can move resources around. So Lewis is making reference to the Bretton Woods Agreement, the, the, the treaty that stabilized the world trade as the solution to uh, disorder in the world through war. That most of the aggressors in World War II were looking to improve their strategic position in trade. And we had not yet developed the network of trading uh, internationally that would allow that to occur. So Germany decides it's got to go conquer all of the surrounding countries for their natural resources. China does the same. All I want to note before we go to the break is that, in fact, the report does make mention of the import of conventional forces. And when we come back, I want to touch on that. And then Lewis can probably more clearly elucidate the failures of the report to really build on that. And we can describe what we think we need to deal with uh, with the next administration and Congress to improve our position, lest we lose the opportunity to secure the homeland. I'm Seth Liebson, Lewis Hallman, Hugh Hallman, and I will be right back. One question I have been asking is uh, this is one of the first uh, country music songs to use horns, um, particularly uh, from a um, a Mexican band, you know, and uh, what are those things called? Mariachi. Mariachi. Mariachi band. What I can't find out, maybe you guys know, why is Mexican food so closely attached to the Christmas season? I can't figure it out. Oh, uh, But it is very interesting. Yeah, so inter- culturally yeah. – um, Mexico is uh, ultimately a Catholic yeah, country, um, and a lot of the Christmas uh, celebration in most countries outside the United States, and even to extent in the U.S., is food associated. Tamales are obviously a and big tamale thing, is right. the biggest thing, piece of it, and uh, you know the 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 big question uh, often presented uh, is: uh, Have you made your tamales le- right. yet, or have you already? Mm-hmm. Gifted your tamales. Sure. Those are the big questions. And if you go to the teepee, it's Christmas season all year round in there. 
Yes. If you've noticed. Now, for Jews, this isn't true. For Jews, Christmas invokes Chinese food. Yes. Just That's not just Jews. It, uh, lots of people go to the Chinese uh, food for the post-Christmas uh, I mean dinner Christmas celebration. Eve. Yeah. Well, Christmas. Christmas Eve, Jews go to Chinese food. Well, Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. That's where That's everybody where they, else goes. Yeah, the leftovers. Okay. So, Sorry. okay, anyway. back, back to the uh, well, cultural piece. constitutes our cultural part of the show. Uh, that's right. Um, <laughs> and so uh, the point we're making is America's strategic uh, posture and the, re- the final report that came out in October uh, by an august body of folks appointed for uh, their intellect and ability, apparently, uh, but not on these subjects, uh, the report's executive summary specifically says, and I quote, the objectives of U.S. strategy must include effective deterrence and defeat of simultaneous Russian and Chinese aggression in Europe and Asia using conventional forces. If the United States and its allies and partners do not field sufficient conventional forces to achieve this objective, U.S. strategy would need to be altered to increase reliance on nuclear weapons to deter counter-opportunistic or collaborative aggression in the other theater, period, unquote. The report, then, is supposed to analyze U.S. strategic posture, and it commits all of – it's a it's an f- extensive report that goes on for 140 pages. And the entire discussion of conventional forces, I think, is on page 66. If I go back to it, yes, you can hear me. 65, I'm sorry for not remembering it exactly right. It goes on for less than half a page. Part of that is because the report pretends that it's going to rely – on the uh, commitments that the U.S. has made with respect to enhancing its um, conventional forces. And the, those commitments are as established in, the, in, in congressional authorization and, and administrative uh, uh, actions. What I find concerning, and I'm going to let Lewis really launch on this, is the failure of this report to describe as it does in the nuclear realm, the kinds of improvements we need to make to conventional forces. As Lewis was describing, the Navy that was built and that we had following World War II, which took us four years to build, we did rebuild, through the Reagan administration, the 600-ship Navy, which also has been gutted, ultimately. Right. And and, and there are increasing numbers of domains as well where this becomes relevant. I I would really think that an overview of America's strategic posture is fundamentally incomplete without a really detailed understanding and discussion of space warfare, satellite communications, all of the systems that undergird the precision strike capabilities of ourselves and our enemies that that, uh, um, are first six hours of any conflict with China or Russia really needs to be targeting their space-based assets. And in fact, this report goes into a significant, and I have to give him credit on this. I remember the days working for President Reagan when he was belittled for the Star Star Wars Wars, concepts. And of course, our entire defense now depends on the uh, having uh, uh, deployed those kinds of assets. What this report is pointing out is that we have failed to maintain them and to enhance them to keep up with uh, the Russian, but more important, the Chinese advances in technology. There's a pretty good section on that, and that does not surprise, given how wedded to the concept the vice chairman of this commission has always been in John Kyle. I believe that has been his signature issue, missile defense, since he ran for Congress in uh, 1986 or 8. 
I, th- I think he's been on missile defense. Yeah, ever and, since. and his he's first been run, one of the loudest champions. That ever. is correct, and I have to give him that because yeah. he was raised in that the era of Ronald Reagan right. because the missile defense. Uh, Star Wars issues was hot, hot, hot as a campaign issue in 1984. The Democrats belittling the entire thing and uh, our campaign effort uh, bringing to bear some of the greatest minds uh, on these subjects to describe it. In fact, uh, one of those minds is in the Oppenheimer film as uh, one of the reasons that Oppenheimer had some challenges. Mm -hmm. Uh, other pieces where, where I, I think it would be worthwhile to to think Edward through tellers who I was referencing. Yeah. Our, our, our strategic posture would be on the modernization, for instance, of our Air Force. The F-35 program has now been underway for a few years. It's gotten a lot of controversy for potentially cost overruns. I am not one of the people that thinks that we are spending overly on that program. I actually support it, um, given the the evolution of that platform and the roles that it will fill. But this, this to me is, again, an issue of glaring omission. And, and this report covers that by say, stating effectively that this is guidance on the strategic side, particularly the, the nuclear side, and that conventional uh, decisions should really be at the discretion of the executive, um, which I think for a, a paper ostensibly covering America's strategic posture is a fairly weak answer. Uh, and and not at all impressive. Well, especially when the executive is somebody that demonstrates incapable, uh, a lack of capability to negotiate in an international environment that is hostile. So there are other issues as well, though. When we're thinking about our strategic posture, so we've established that this report doesn't do a very good job in thinking through um, the the, the conventional side of things as well. But I want to move beyond not only just the system side, you know, what are the what are the planes that we need? What are the tanks that we need? What are the ships that we need? But there are other issues as well. What are the logistical assets that we need, the ammunition production rates that we need? Ukraine, I think, has brought this issue to the forefront very effectively. What kinds of munition, what kinds of stockpiles do we need to operate this military? Additionally, what kind of manpower do we need to operate this military? The truism that has existed since the the dawn of warfare has been that you always need boots on the ground. It doesn't matter how sophisticated the weapons get. It doesn't matter how many additional platforms we put in play. Ultimately, even in Iraq, even in Afghanistan, in the 21st century, it still will ultimately come down to the infantry. And we are now living in a world where the Zoomers are replacing baby boomers. Our largest demographic generation is being replaced with our smallest, and that is then hollowing out the composition of our armed forces. How are we going to address that? How, would we, how should we pivot that in a, in a global world? They don't world? touch this at all. They do not. Seven do words not. Of the variation on recruit in this 160-page document. Right. So there, there are recruit, – Recruitment, recruiting, all comprehensively gives you the number seven. Right. And and we're missing – you know, and we're, and we're falling short of the equivalent of a brigade, a brigade a year in almost every branch of the armed forces. Right. And, and – more, more than a brigade. Thinking through the, the, the silos, thinking through the disposition of, of North Dakota's missiles is not – a holistic answer to our strategic response. Pick we need up more. on that when we come back. Yeah, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. This problem we are discussing has been with us for some time. James Madison in the Federalist writes, no part of the union ought to feel more anxiety on the subject of defense than New York. 
Her seacoast is extensive. A very important district of the state is an island. The state itself is penetrated by a large navigable river for more than 50 leagues. The great emporium of its commerce, the great reservoir of its wealth, lies every moment at the mercy of events and may almost be regarded as a hostage for ignominious compliances with the dictates of a foreign enemy or even the rapacious demands of pirates and barbarians. That concept is, I think, the perfect launch for Lewis, and I'm going to direct him a little bit to talk about why nuclear weapons are insufficient deterrence for evildoers and why it's crucial to have that conventional force in the in the game theory piece of it. Right. So, so I, I love this topic. Um, and this is something that we alluded to, I think, a little bit earlier with what's called a short-of-war scenario. Now, in... If, if you are dealing with a nuclear-armed adversary, so if I am invading the nation of Hugh, which is a nuclear-armed adversary, if we are, if we are enemies, uh, it's going to be pretty Sorry, tough son, for we? me to, to, to go and overthrow that, that uh, uh, dastardly dictator. Um, and so what I'm going to have to do in order to, to thwart him is I'm going to have to nibble around the edges. I'm going to have to figure out how I can attack you in such a way where you are hurt and damaged, but not damaged sufficiently that you are threatened enough to use your nukes on me. Pause. That requires an understanding of a different view on each side of the use of nuclear weapons. You have, for example, Russia through Belarus talking about the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, where the U.S. is constrained by its, its ethics and philosophy that nuclear weapons are off the table, except as a counterstrike, more or less, and then only in extreme circumstances. One ultimately sees a couple of movies having been made over the notion that is anybody in these United States who is raised on the notion that life matters willing to push that button? And, and you know, we, we can get into a, a lot of the details around what the nuclear triad is in the United States, which are the three types of delivery systems that we use, uh, which are uh, pre- conventionally long-range bombers, um, uh, international ballistic missiles, or sorry, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and um, submarines are, are, are sort of the three vehicles we use. And they all have their pros and cons in terms of payload, uh, survivability, second strike capability, these types of things. But um, I, I, I think one of the things that really needs to be stressed, though, is that Part of what's happened to us in the last couple hundred years is that we have moved to a we moved from a world where war was was discreet. It was a yes or no outcome. We knew when we were at war and when we were at peace, and we have now moved to a world where that is not very clear anymore. And that the lines between war and peace, rather than being con- uh, a, a discreet state. Those have become continuous. And that's one of the issues now that, that nuclear strategists have to deal with is that uh, any kind of deterrent strategy works really well if you've got a discrete, a discrete state of war and peace. Because when war happens, we have nuclear options. When peace happens, we don't need to touch the button. However, once things get very blurry and you start engaging in those kinds of short of war operations, it gets very, very taxing and it's very, very difficult to tell when you are actually at peace. So, for example, Russia going into Crimea. Was that war or not? If it was war, we behaved as if it was not. 
then drew red lines in the sand that ultimately the Russians crossed. And then we had a president turn over the Middle East effectively and fights in the Middle East to Russia, yielding territory that we had for a long time uh, since I was before I was in college, worked diligently to keep the Russians out of. They were engaged at the edges, but not very deeply. And here we have a very uh, a universe in which we've got adversaries, China and Russia, demonstrating on a regular basis their willingness to do all kinds of things short of forcing the U.S. to respond and even using language about the use of nuclear weapons. This could also be espionage. It could be cyber attacks. It could be theft, what have you. It could be, you know, all, all, all sorts of activities. The the menu of options in a uh, in, in this new world is growing and ever increasing. And it is one that we need to be very, very concerned of. And we cannot allow the sum total of our conversation about our strategic posture to rely on half a page of discussion about our conventional forces. There is so much more conversation to be had. And we'll have it. I I could do this for five hours with you guys. Thanks for highlighting it. We're talking about America's strategic posture. You can get it online, Google, DuckDuckGo, you name it. We'll be right back. Uh, the, The only reason we do this, really, is to show how much more about Hanukkah Peter Yarrow knew than Kamala Harris's husband. That's all. Uh, are you familiar with this scandal? Uh, Kamala Harris's husband does a uh, – are you familiar with this? I, I'm not, so please enlighten me. Oh, my me. goodness gracious. So on the first night of Hanukkah, the first – the second husband, is that what he's called? Kamala Harris's husband has a picture of him and the vice president – he and the – him yeah. and the vice president uh, lighting the Hanukkah candles. And then he does a, a Hanukkah message. Today we celebrate Hanukkah, the celebration of – it was wrong in every sentence, so much so. So much so that they actually had to take it down, which I think constitutes the first time in the history of the Internet that an official holiday greeting had to be taken down out of the embarrassment of how wrong it was. He being, you know, the probably highest ranking Jew in the administration. All right. um, I would add, by the way, since Bill is uh, Bill, since young David is choosing uh, choosing music, don't forget the Bare Naked Ladies uh, Hanukkah song. That's actually really quite spectacular. If you, I actually heard. prefer Elf's Lament. The uh, Elf's Lament is good, but it's a Christmas song. The Hanukkah song that's the staying on two theme. To one here, here Lewis. Two to one. Staying on three the to one here. if you include David. Staying Four to one the if theme. you include Mister. Mister. Bill. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, Mr. Bill. Uh, Getting back to our main topic, aside from the fact that the uh, second gentleman, I believe, is the phrase you were looking for, not the second husband. Uh, She may have had one before, we don't know, but I don't think they were formally married. Uh, uh, Unlike Jill Biden, who is both the first lady and the second wife. Uh, so how's that for coming full circle for bad ambiguity? Yes, I love it. indeed. Um, it throws off the terrorists. We, yeah, we want to talk about or wanted it. We were talking about America's strategic posture. And here is the challenge we now face. We are, as this report clearly demonstrates, ill prepared for dealing with China and Russia simultaneously. The report only touches on in the conventional forces point that we have, in addition uh, to uh, the need to deal with those two foes that are threatening us on regular occasion, we also have others in the regions that need to be dealt with. And it, in fact, finally talks about the fact uh, that we have to deal with 
uh, Iran and other countries that are poised to do ill. And having nuclear weapons is not going to be an easy choice solution for any of these conflicts. It was, however, Dwight Eisenhower who would know, having led our forces at the end of World War II to victory, with a lot of help, obviously, um, that we, w- we were at risk for being held hostage by our defense industrial complex. We have made lots of fun about the fact and built that concept here. It's now overused by others that we have now a medical industrial complex that uh, abused us for COVID and many other examples where the money get is so large now in these industries that you have giant organizational structures built up that are lobbying Congress continuously to get more so, and more self-generating money. Leviathans. Correct. Yeah. And and the, the initial one of those <laughs> was the defense industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us against. We never did take his advice seriously and address it effectively. So we have these huge organizations pulling more and more money out for defense systems that may or may not be effective. Um, I would argue that they're more effective than the Russian defense and and, and uh, offensive weapons uh, because those uh, totalitarian regimes have reason to hide failure. Uh, China has the same problem and, and nobody tells the premier uh, when things aren't actually working. Uh, so at least we have that advantage. The disadvantage we now have is we're ill-prepared. And the cost of getting prepared is going to be enormous to fill the holes we have allowed to be created, that the rottenness that has occurred, the corrosive nature of failure to pay attention to these. So we have a a defense industrial complex that is uh, poised to make lots of money and cost us horrendous amounts of treasure while we need to actually do this. I I am really drawn back to... The leadership we developed in the late 1950s and early 1960s that carried us to 1980 victory, Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater and others, defense hawks, who identified this problem and we took it seriously. And what's even more galling is on on the backs of the great good work that those people did, we have the authors of this document who are claiming that the very two-war solution that those defense hawks proposed was a totally unforeseen circumstance and that nobody could have foreseen that we would have to face two peer competitors at the same time when, in fact, that very operation, that very notion was the cornerstone of our entire defense policy for about four decades. And what what instead I, I, I have to conclude is that the people that are in this very report saying that it was totally unforeseen that we would be in the present situation that, that we're in, that we're in the current scenario that we're in, they are covering up for their own negligence and ignorance. That is the only way you get there. We had this policy explicitly previously. Then these people take power and suddenly we're blindsided. Crap, I say. And that brings me back to a show some time ago when Henry Kissinger passed away. uh, Seth and a colleague were describing that uh, neither is a fan of Henry Kissinger. And I want to object for this particular reason. Henry Kissinger was part and parcel of developing those strategies and to hold him accountable for the failures that crept in beginning in 1992 after we'd built this system and that the Middle East became a disaster, that Vietnam's uh, uh, exit was disastrous. I have to remind people, look at the world 
1967, 68, 69, 70, when Kissinger ultimately was tasked with the job of getting us out of Vietnam by the presidential candidate, then president, Richard Nixon. We had an entire group of kids in our society making it impossible for most people to hear the reason we were in Vietnam protecting the United States and the rest of the world from the expansion of communist Marxist dictators. And they had to deal with that reality. To bring it to today, we have an entire generation of kids running around having adopted the same Marxist, communist, crazy philosophies and listen to Seth's monologue in the first hour. He gives voice to the fact that he is concerned, as I am, that the children we have running around college campuses are being taught by people who should have known better. Presidents of universities that can't articulate that murdering Jews is wrong. And can we grow out of it? We will not have the time if we do not prepare ourselves militarily now. And it is inexcusable that we are going to have another round of this with young people who do not understand the stakes that we are facing. That's our problem. When we come back, we'll put a bow on it, although that was awfully fine. But there's one more to tie. And the Hallmans and I will do it when we come right back. This is the Elf's Lament. Is, is that the Bare Naked Ladies? Bare Naked Ladies. It is a. It it's is my a, favorite Christmas song. Elf's Lament. I, I was unfamiliar with this. It is a labor protest song written from the perspective of the elves working for Santa on garnished wages. Oh, and it's hysterical. It, it's, it's beautifully done. They're, the lyrics are fabulous. These are great musicians. I'm going to check it out as soon as uh, we finish up here. Well, first of all, thank you for taking this thing so darn seriously, America's strategic posture. I do think, actually, as I was thinking through it, it um, suffered publicity not only because of the um, October 7th events, but to be honest and critical, I think it suffered from a lack of esteem on and a lack of credibility and a lack, and, and a lack of uh, seriousness by the committee members for the most part. If you look at the original 2009. I actually think that this is something that, that has suffered an ongoing lack of seriousness no. for the better part of a century. Yeah, um, no, go ahead. No, go well, ahead. What, go one ahead. of the things that, that I, I think has happened that's very interesting academically is the removal of military theory, military history, yeah. military science yeah. from universities, yeah. ROTC programs from universities. Uh, uh, conflict theory, military theory is no longer thought of even as a serious academic discipline. And so it's scarce wonder that our, our recent work in this regard is becoming less and less impressive over time. Hugh Hallman, did you want to say something? I was just going to say something quick, but just, you go ahead. You, you, you point out that it, it maybe didn't get the press it needed because of the October 7th events in Israel. And that was exactly the reason it should have. Yeah, exactly right. Because and, and we could spend hours on this, but one of the threads maybe we can pick up next time we're together is the, um, is the issue that you raised about the fluidity between war and peace. Yeah. The indefinite. And you had mentioned that. We weren't sure whether there was a war when Russia took Crimea. I think the problem so much in the Middle East is we're not sure if there's peace. I don't know if there was peace on October 6th. Well, we can 5th, see this because our, these wars never really f come to a conclusion the way erstwhile wars have. Well, we, we see this in our own posture. The U.S. hasn't declared war since World War II. Also, uh, also the way we have ended wars is unclear whether it was a peace well, or not. Did you end a war Vietnam if you never forward. started? Well, uh, yes. Afghanistan? We'll, we'll pick up on uh, – it's a fascinating series of thoughts. 
One last piece. We had a professor at Claremont, Harold Rood, who did teach his class how to change a tire. Do you remember this? Someone said to him, what, Professor Rude, why are you teaching kids how to cheat? He said, I don't know. It just seems to me if they're on a battleground, some, a battlefield someday and they blow a tire, it might be a good idea that they know how to change one. Not a bad teacher, that. I miss Bill Rude. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.